Well, turn with me, if you would, to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12. Set a fire in my soul. I love that. Today we're going to see what in many ways is the secret of fire in the soul. We've been looking at the qualities of true Christianity here in Romans 12, the, the, the virtues that make our faith real and that are, the, at the, are to be at the heart of our appeal as Christians to a watching world. For well over a year now, in Romans 1 to 11, we've been focusing on the truth, and we've seen how the truth is really the pillar and the support of the church. The foundation of any congregation has got to be sound theology, which we are getting away from these days. But if that's the root, then according to Romans chapter 12 to 16, the fruits of sound theology are the qualities, as we've been calling them, of true Christianity, all of which relate in one way or another to love. And so Romans divides very simply between the truth in chapter 1 to 11 and love in chapter 12 to 16. And it starts with humility as we serve one another in love, as we saw in verses 3 to 8. And then uh, charity, as we saw two weeks ago in verse 9. And in particular, sincerity rather than hypocrisy in our love, which is what the world is looking for. And then last week in verse 10, we saw that the way we preserve our love and that really the way that we prize those that we do love is through courtesy toward one another. Uh, giving preference to one another in honor. And there's a lot there. But today we come to the fourth quality, which you'll find in verse 11, which ultimately has to do with our love for God. It's where Paul says that we're to be not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving who? The Lord. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving out of love for the Lord which moves us from humility to sincerity to courtesy to really, as we're going to see today, uh, industry, and uh, an industry of a particular kind. According to Paul, this is fundamental to the faith, and it flies in the faith of armchair, armchair Christianity, where all we do is sit and soak, and the height of our week is to sit and listen to a sermon, and then we listen to more during the week, and we never get out there in Christian industry of the kind that Paul's talking about here. This is not true of many in this church, and I praise God for that. But what kind of industry is he talking about here? Well, according to Titus 2.14, he says, God, Christ gave himself for us to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, that we are to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. A, a commandment, by the way, that does not end with retirement. Colossians 3.23, he says, work hard at whatever you do, as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Not lagging behind in diligence, back to Romans 12, 11, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. This goes very deep. We often tend to focus so much on the fact that we're not saved by works that we neglect the doctrine that we are saved, as we say, for works, right? That we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, Ephesians 2.10. That we should walk therein with all our heart and soul and mind and strength out of our love for God. 
But having said that, we're going to see today that according to this verse, this means a lot more than just being busy. A lot more than just a lot of fleshly activity. No, it's, it's not like the bumper sticker. You, you may have seen it, the one, the one that says, Jesus is coming. Act busy. <laughs> Act busy. Look busy. We're going to see today that he's not looking for us just to look busy. To be busy for, you know, uh, for appearance sake. Because Christianity is not just about external activity, about roots, uh, fruits with no roots. Which is why uh, Paul doesn't just say not lagging behind in diligence. No, he puts a big comma after that. And he goes on to say it goes deeper. He immediately goes deeper, fervent in spirit. And then deepest of all, serving the Lord as the wellspring of everything. You might say he takes, this, uh, it, he takes us in this verse from the effect uh, to the cause, from external industry to spiritual fervency to really relational loyalty to the Lord. He takes us by the hand from the priority uh, of our industry, not lagging behind in diligence, that's the action, to our fervency, fervent in spirit, that's the passion uh, behind the action. And what's the motivation behind the passion? Serving the Lord. Let me say that again, because it's the wellspring of everything. Paul moves us from the priority of our industry, not lagging behind in diligence, that's the action, to our fervency, fervent in spirit, that's the passion behind the action, to the foundation and motivation behind it all, our loyalty, serving the Lord. There's so much here. Our, our industry is not supposed to be just rote, but it's supposed to be real and real rich. It's to be stoked with fervency. But we're to be fervent in spirit, as Paul says here, not just in the flesh. And this happens when it's all stoked by our loyalty when we're serving the Lord. And so as I've titled this message, the bottom line is this. The, the engine of Christian industry is the right loyalty. <laughs> The engine of Christian industry is the right loyalty. The loyalty that comes from a love relationship, a faith relationship, an awe relationship with the Lord Christ whom we serve. Our verse for today penetrates to the very heart and soul of the Christian faith, to, 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 to why we do what we do. Paul's saying the secret of a life well lived is to live for him. Paul's saying uh, it's a fundamental quality of true Christianity, one that's all about the, 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 the richer industry that comes from a deeper loyalty through which we make live contact with him who's the wellspring of everything. Now, you'll find this all over the place in scripture. So that's the teaching of Romans 12, 11, but it's just the tip of an iceberg verse. So important is it? So let's let God's word sink in a bit before we then see how practically it works out in practice. The best parallel to Romans 12, 11 is Colossians 3, 23, where Paul fleshes it out a bit more. He writes, whatever you do, do your work heartily. Same idea, fervent in spirit. Do your work heartily. Then he goes on to say, as for the Lord. Same idea, serving the Lord. 
rather than for men. And so important is this that he goes on to say it again in a different way. Knowing that it's the, from the Lord Christ, you'll receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. That's the bottom line of everything. He repeats it three times. Ephesians 6, 5 to 9. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, slaves of him, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, he will receive back from the Lord when he comes again, whether slave or free. Jesus is coming. Look busy. No, in all you do, do it for him. Doesn't matter how menial your work is or, how, or how, how mean your boss might be. It doesn't matter what you're doing or where you're doing it. It can have an eternal value and you will reap uh, an eternal reward if you do it for him. These verses, like many others in the scripture, are the basis for the Protestant work ethic and uh, which in a good part made our nation great. That your work matters to God. That wh- whatever he calls you to do, However, however unfulfilling it may be, however far it may be from anything that may seem to matter, however unrelated to anything enjoyable or noticeable that you might really want to do, your work matters because you can do it as unto him, as much as anyone can, and you can do it as much where you are as you can anywhere, and that's all that matters. What matters most is not what you're doing or where you're doing it or when or why but, or, or, or where, but why you're doing it, who you're doing it for. Because he's the Lord Christ, the creator of the universe, our savior and master. And all that matters is pleasing him. We're gonna see one day when he returns and every knee will bow. In all you do, work heartily as unto him out of loyalty to him. And everything flows from that. And so, when we were raising kids, I was the one who had to wash the dishes. And the kids had to dry the dishes. But that was my job, even after a long day. And as I did, I don't know how many times I prayed over the years. I prayed, Lord, I don't feel like doing this, but I'm doing it for you. You tell me to honor Julie as a fellow heir to the grace of life and how dishonorable, you know, to expect her to do the dishes after slaving over the meal. Lord, help me do this well. Man, it seems so futile. It really did. Grant, Grant eternal value to this. And before I knew it, Rachel's saying, Daddy, you're doing them so fast and they're all so clean. And I tell her, yeah, honey, Jesus cares about the dishes, and so do I. And he's helping me make them clean and to do them with my whole heart because I'm trying to do it for him. Actually, truth be told, that wasn't the only reason I did them so fast. It was also because I wanted to get it over with. (laughs) But under it all, there was an attempt to serve him. I don't always succeed at this, but when I did... It really did add some fervency to my spirit. And I know many of you experience this too, without hardly even thinking about it. Because it can make a veritable uh, 
industry of our lives, and that is the worship, not just of our lips, but of our lives. When by faith we infuse uh, mundane actions with a motive, with a, a sacred motive that results in a fervent manner that's pleasing to the master. And they, he will remember and reward forever. Unbelievable. All because of our mandate, not lagging behind in diligence, and our manner, fervent in spirit, which happens as we cultivate the right motive, serving the Lord. Now, I'd like to flesh out this teaching today as literally and as concretely as I can. We've seen what it means in Romans 12, 11. We've seen it fleshed out from scripture. What does it look like practically? I gave you one example. There, there are some things that you learn best, not just by hearing instruction, but by seeing you know, some illustrations, some incarnations of uh, what we're talking about. Fervency out of loyalty is one of those things that I found in my own life is more caught than taught as I watch it in other people the spirit of God through them. And one of the best ways I know to stoke it up in my spirit uh, over the years has been the reading of spiritual biographies. There's a, there's a whole cloud of witnesses who can help us here. And, and these days, as we need it more than ever. It's in, our, in our cancel culture, when so many of our forebears, you know, have fallen out of favor, we're becoming rootless. And it's not helped by the fact that so few people read anymore. And so the fire of the devotion of those who went before us is becoming, is becoming lost to us. My father could hardly stop talking about a woman who was his hero. And she became mine because of him. Her name was Henrietta Mears. And he would be forever quoting from her spiritual, from her, uh, or her biography. She's one of the first that comes to mind when I think of being fervent in spirit. And it stoked it up in me. Miss Mears never married, and so she gave her entire life undistractedly to the Lord. She was the founder of Gospel Light Publications. She founded the Forest Home Bible Conference Center, which impacted whole generations for Christ. She was the inspiration and really the genius behind the Sunday school program of the First Presbyterian Church in Hollywood, uh, where my father attended when he went to college. And her, her teaching and her example deeply impacted him. Her impact went even as far as Billy Graham. He said this, Henrietta Mears has had a remarkable influence in my life, both directly and indirectly. In fact, I doubt if any other woman outside my wife and mother has had such a marked influence. Here's what one of her biographers wrote. He said, Miss Mears has been called public energy number one. <laughs> A young college man who stayed in her home one summer writes this. The summer that I lived in her home was both an inspiration and humiliation. The pace she set was inspiring, but because of my fatigue and trying to keep up, it was also humbling. I like to think of myself as a healthy young man, but she easily outdistanced me. I remember driving home with teacher, capital T, which is what they called her, from Wednesday night prayer meeting, dog-tired and trying to carry on my part of the conversation as she, with uncanny vigor, continued to pour out her spirit, fervent in spirit. I wish there were time to read more, but where do you think she got that fervency? Well, we'll see in a bit. If you want to catch the spirit, you might want to read the biography of Henrietta Mears. 
Same is true for one who has had the greatest influence in my own life when it comes to being fervent in spirit, and that is George Whitfield, the great evangelist of the first great awakening at the end of the 18th century who preached 250 years ago. He almost single-handedly brought the awakening to the 13 colonies of America after helping it spread like wildfire across England. And on this 4th of July, when we celebrate our freedoms, I think we do well maybe to celebrate him and the spiritual freedom that he ushered in through the revival that came at such a formative time in the, nation, in the history of our nation. If you read Arnold Dolomore's biography of Whitfield, it'll change your life. But few people these days are really into thick two-volume biographies, unfortunately. I can't even begin to communicate the spirit of this man in a few quotes, and it'll probably fall flat, but here it goes. Listen to what none other than Ben Franklin, who wasn't a follower of Christ, said about him after his death, having been deeply impacted by his uh, light and his truth. He said, mentioning Mr. Whitfield, I cannot forbear expressing the pleasure it gave me to see the newspaper, in the newspapers an account of the respect paid to his memory. I knew him intimately, upwards of 30 years. His integrity, his indefatigable zeal in every good work, fervent in spirit. I have never seen equaled, nor shall I, I believe shall I ever see it excelled. Mr. Whitfield used to pray for my conversion, but never had the satisfaction of seeing his prayers answered. Franklin was a feisty fellow. Here's how a close personal friend remembered Whitfield, uh, uh, Dr. Giles of Glasgow. First, I am struck with his unwearied diligence in the offices of religion and his conscientious improvement of every portion of his life. Take a view of his public conduct. Here he is engaged either in the preaching of the gospel, in visiting and giving counsel to the afflicted, in instructing the ignorant, or in celebrating the praises of God. Observe his behavior in private company. There you'll hear him introducing upon all occasions and upon, among all sorts of people discourse that tended to edification. And if you follow him to his retirements, you see him writing devout meditations upon the occurrences of the day or letters to his Christian acquaintances full of piety and zeal. Talk about Romans 12:11 in a nutshell. Charles Wesley summed it up in a letter that he wrote to Whitfield. My dear brother, I wish you good luck in the name of the Lord since you are, and I love this, you are resolved to die in the saddle. That's what my father kept saying. He was a, a fan of Whitfield as well. Oh, that more Christians in America would resolve to die in the saddle and not in the armchair. Now, it, it can be a dangerous thing to read a missionary biography because you, you, you read it and you, think, you just throw up your hands. Why even try after all they did? I can't be like that. They'll always do that, in fact, if you focus on, on, on the incredible works of these men and women rather than on their incredible Lord. Their mandate is not our mandate, but, 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 but their motive can be your motive. And all that God wants for you will flow out of that and that's all that matters. Which is why Paul moves from our industry not lagging behind in diligence, to our fervency, fervent in spirit, to finally our loyalty, which alone will bring it all to pass in the way it was meant to be, serving the Lord. These people would be the first to say that it wasn't them 
because, because he was the secret of their uh, fervency. And all you have to do is what God's calling you to do out of loyalty to him and no more. All we have to do is make live contact with their Lord and it will all flow. So here's the point, and really the point of our verse for today. Not their actions, but their passion. Not their labors, but their master. Their their mandate was different than probably anyone here, as was their manner. But their motives were the same as many here, I praise God. And that's the heart of it. That's all that matters. How so? Well, it's like Henrietta Mears said, here's what was under all she did. I will spend and be spent, she says, in this battle. I will not seek rest and ease. Why? I will seek the fellowship of the man of sorrows acquainted with grief as he walks through this stricken world. I will not fail him. Catch her loyalty? She was serving the Lord. Like George Whitfield, who said, I've been ranging the woods in the service of the best of masters. Catches admiration. He was serving the Lord. My constant work now is preaching about 15 times a week. This with a weak appetite, want of rest, and much care lying on my mind, enfeebles my, uh, me too, my, my too feeble nature. But still, my greatest grief is that I can do no more for him who has done so much for me. Catch his gratitude. He was serving the Lord. Oh, that God would make my way into every town in England. I long to break up fresh ground, to begin to begin to do something for Jesus. After all that he had done, again and again he'd say, I want to begin to begin to do something for my Lord. Whitfield developed severe asthma and other problems that eventually killed him. In fact, at one point someone said to him, Mr. Whitfield, you are more fit to go to bed than to preach. To which Whitfield answered, true, sir. But then he looked up and said, Lord Jesus, I am weary in thy work, but not of thy work. Catches fidelity, he was serving the Lord. Whitfield died, believe it or not, at 56. Here's how he ended his last letter. You will see by the many invitations what a door is open for preaching the everlasting gospel. I was so ill on Friday that I could not preach, though thousands were waiting to hear. Well, the day of my release will shortly come. But it does not seem yet. For after riding 60 miles, I feel better and hope to preach here tomorrow. He never did. He wrote another letter. Here are his last recorded words. I trust my blessed master will accept these poor efforts to serve him. Catch his fidelity. He loved the master. He was serving the Lord. A few weeks later, he died. And as I put the second volume down for the last time, I remembered a song that, that Steve Green used to sing. Oh, may all who've gone before us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light the way. Are you lighting the way for your loved ones, for your children, for your grandchildren? 
for a watching world. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that there are two kinds of Christians, those who have taken up Christianity and those who've been taken up by Christ. Secret of being fervent in spirit is to be taken up by Christ. The secret of being fervent in spirit is to, is, is to know who you're serving, that you're serving the Lord because he alone will ignite our spirit to fulfill our unique duties in a way that it's supposed to look for us, like for us personally, unlike any, anyone else. So how do you feed it? How do you stoke up your fervency? Well, it's not us, it's him again, and it's ultimately his doing, which is the whole point of the gospel, not us, but him. We need him, and he does it to us and through us. It's his doing, and that's the final point today. It's one reason why Paul immediately goes on, as we're going to see in a couple weeks, in the next verse, in the very next verse, in Romans 12, 12, to talk about tribulation. He does that because that's what we're in for when it comes to this faith that we've signed up for. In another place, Paul said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven because we were purified to live solely for him more and more through the fires of affliction. It's all over the place in scripture. One ancient author, St. John of the Cross, was all over this. He called it the dark night of the senses, by which he means the feelings. The dark night of, the, of feelings that come along the way of the cross that uh, he has called us to, where God severs what's usually a secret connection between our fleshly drives and our motives. He said, pride is the mother of many virtues. Many other vices can spawn our virtues too. Listen carefully. And so like a mother weaning a child, God dries up our experience of fleshly satisfaction and takes away the pleasure we had received in the things of heaven and in the things of earth. But if we but persevere, having been scourged by God, we will begin to act with a new motivation and with deeper satisfaction. And he's done that with many of you. Not lagging behind in spirit, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Whitfield had been through the fire, as had Henrietta Mears, as many of you have. And he died at an early age. Abraham Lincoln had been through the fire as well, more than most know. Here on the 4th of July, when we celebrate our freedoms and when we re uh, remember our roots, I thought we'd remember him who brought freedom to so many. He was the very picture of all we've been talking about. There's a biography of Lincoln that's really a must read, speaking of how these things are more caught than taught, especially if you're a more melancholy temperament like he was, as I am. Uh, it's so good, I've read it twice, and I'm into my third time through it. The Washington Post selected it as the best book of the year, as did the New York Times uh, book review. Uh, it's called, of all things, Lincoln's Melancholy, How Depression challenged a president, and fueled his greatness. Lincoln's melancholy. How depression challenged a president and fueled his greatness. Lincoln's entire life was like an act of the will against depressing emotions. 
They were afflictions that purged away other fleshly motivations until, as you read his biographies, most of what he did boiled down to one reason. One of his biographers put it this way, Lincoln's story endures in large part because his suffering increased his humility and determination. His humility came from the sense that whatever ship carried him on life's rough waters, he was not the captain. His determination came from a sense that however humble his station, he was no idle passenger but a sailor on a deck with a job to do in the service of the captain. All boiled down to that. He was not in the service of the nation nearly as much as he was in the service of the captain. And that's a word for many today. He had a job to do and a strange mix of deference to define authority and willful exercise of his own meager power. In deference to divine authority, he exercised his own meager power to do his duty. He was right. If, if it was right before God, it gave him might before men. Because that was his motivation. To do his duty with fervency, with this incredible, uh, indomitable industry that you see in his life. You can wash dishes on that kind of power, you can preach sermons on that kind of power. The power of the loyalty that comes from a faith relationship with the master. It was just like George Whitfield and Henrietta Mears and with so many of our forebears who are becoming lost to history. His loyalty to God alone was the secret of his industry. He said, whatever shall appear to be God's will, I will do. He said, I am not bound to win. So many are bound to win, even in the church. Rather, I am bound to be true to him. I am not bound to succeed, but I am bound to live up to what light he has given me. He said, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side. Then he had power. The fire of his affliction boiled life down to the essence of his, uh, of his vocation. A calling that moved him not just with fleshly, but with spiritual power. It it was a calling that came from this pure-hearted motivation to obey the captain to do his duty. In a day when duty went deep. A calling that can only come through affliction. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving. Oh, yeah, it's more caught than taught. And I'm telling you, it can be caught by reading the right biographies. Lincoln knew that slavery was sheer depravity in the eyes of God Almighty. And so to abolish it was his sacred duty in a day when duty went deep into God. And that duty, that loyalty, through all that agony, became like the, the, the engine of his industry. He talked about it with such fire through the fire that comes only through affliction, that comes only from heaven. They first saw it in his Cooper Institute speech, which was the largest venue at the time in Manhattan. It was just after John Brown's hanging on Monday, February 28th, 1860. 
A crowd of more than 1,500 people had filed into the great hall, and they took their seats into this long rectangular theater that stretched an entire city block. Republican Party insiders were looking for someone to challenge William Seward uh, for the presidential nomination, and it was Lincoln's New York debut, and he didn't know it, but it was the, uh, the, the very eve of his political ascension. Oh, he didn't know it, to put it mildly. He thought the opposite would happen. He felt that he would fail in his speech, as he often felt he would. And he stood up only because he knew it was his duty. And on the strength of that single speech, God sent him hurling toward the center of the nation's mounting crisis at the time. At the end of it, the paper said the hall was so quiet that one could hear the sizzle of the gas burners. He concluded with a call to action against slavery, but it's also a call to action whatever your sacred duty may be. Before God Almighty. Let us stand by our duty, he said, fearlessly and effectively. Let us be diverted by none of those sophisticated contrivances by which they belabor us, such as reversing the divine rule, groping for some middle ground between the right and the wrong, which is as vain as the search for a man who should neither be a living or a dead man, such as a policy of don't care, a question about which all true men do care. Neither let us be slandered from our duty by false accusations against us, nor frightened from it by menaces of destruction to the government, nor of dungeons to ourselves. Let us have faith that, that, that right makes might. And in that faith, let us to the end dare to do our duty as we understand it. With firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive to finish the work that we are in, for therein the honor lies with him. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. I say that's about as far as you can get from Jesus is coming, look busy. <laughs> No, Abraham Lincoln worked heartily as unto him, and so he spoke thunderously as for him. He followed, as he said, a divine rule and calling to do his duty before God Almighty. Because the engine of his industry was the right loyalty to the one whose, remember, eyes are a flame of fire, as we saw two years ago in Revelation whose voice is like the sound of many waters, far more than any, the best of pastors, whose face is like the sun, shining in its strength, our only savior and master. And by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him and through him. And God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, the Lord Christ whom we serve. And I saw heaven open, said John. Who is he? 
And behold, a white horse, and he sat upon it. And he who sat upon it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And all the tribes of the earth will beat their breasts, for from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord. Lord of Lords. Who's your Lord? Who are you serving? Even so, amen. And he said, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. And that's all that matters. My reward for those who were not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And so whether you're a husband or a wife or a pastor or a parishioner, an employer or an employee, mother, brother, sister, son, whatever your vocation, dare to do your duty at home and at work and at church and in the highways and the byways. Let us strive to finish the work we are in, for therein the honor lies with the right one. As you enter the next chapter in the history of this body, do it with an industry born of your loyalty, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit serving the Lord. Whatever you do as the worship leaders come forward, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Oh, may it be the Lord Christ whom we serve. Amen.